that I didn't have this on this morning because with the pews rather empty, my voice resounds. When there, is, uh, when there are 45,500, which we run on every Sunday, of course you absorb all of the voice that I might give out. But I did notice this morning, see, that even without this on, that my voice was resounding. And of course that means I have quite a few empty pews here. But I praise the Lord for all of you who came out. I really marvelous. You know, I always, uh, I always feel a little bad. You know, uh, especially when you're bringing messages uh, from the Bible and uh, on the Second Coming and the wonderful things. I hate anybody to miss anything. Uh, I really do, uh, because there's there's so much to be said. Some of the things I'll be saying in the next few weeks, I don't uh, believe that uh, anyone should miss. I think there are signs that have not even ever been mentioned, you see, to my mind that indicate Christ's second coming. Uh, things that are happening that uh, indicate that the Lord must come soon. Plus the signs that we know, plus the signs that are in the scriptures, let me say, there are signs outside of the scriptures in man's behavior, in man's inventive genius, in man's capacity, if I might say, to control man, which I will enlarge on at another time, that indicate the necessity of Christ's return. Man will never become a robot. I'm not going to enlarge upon this. There's much to be said here. Uh, I may enlarge on it next week, be sure you're here. Uh, now, this morning I thought uh, I had prepared one message, and uh, then I got up this morning rather early, or oh, I guess around 5 o'clock, which is my normal rising time, incidentally. Uh, don't think that this is unusual. I'm usually up at five. I get about all my life, five to six hours sleep is normal for me. Uh, I don't need any more. It wouldn't matter much what time I go to bed. Uh, I'm up the same time. But this isn't, this is something that uh, has been normal for me since I'm a young boy. My mother and father died when I was very young. So I had to more or less run my own life make my own breakfast, do everything for myself, and I learned rising very early in the morning. It stayed with me. I wake up without clocks, you know. I don't need any clocks, and uh, I don't need daylight. Uh, I just wake up at about 5 o'clock, and that's it. Uh, doesn't matter much what happens the night before. Uh, fortunately, as most of you know, I don't go out Saturday nights. Uh, I uh, am home Saturday nights. No one ever asked me to a social affair on Saturday night. Last night I was invited, but I came because it was at 5.30. It didn't interfere at all with me. I had my dinner with the ladies and then went up to my study, as many of you know. But uh, I just praise the Lord that uh, when I got up this morning, the Lord just was speaking to my heart about some portions in Scripture that are very, very precious. And, of course, in reference to the second coming. Uh... I'm speaking of the judgments of the great tribulation at this time. Uh, 
the Great Tribulation comes uh, is a seven-year period which comes at the end of the Age of Grace and before the setting up of the Millennial Kingdom of Christ upon earth, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, a thousand-year reign of Christ upon earth to dwell in righteousness with his own and to have them in glory with himself and then upon the earth to bring a kingdom in which the lion shall lie down with the lamb. And the child shall go to the cockatrice's den and there shall be no lethal doses of poison from any source where Christ will reign as king of kings and lord of lords. The United Nations on the wall as its as its great uh, treatise says this using the Bible, the United Nations, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And the day is coming when swords shall be beat into plowshares. When the fruit trees, as the scripture says, shall bear fruit 12 times a year, there shall be glory for this on earth here this earth which during man's history has found no government that is righteous, as fine as rulers have been, as beneficent as they have been, they pass away. Death takes all men away. And the next ruler can be a wicked, degenerate man. All down through history, this has been the history of man. One president follows another. One king follows another. One monarch follows another. And there are the changes that take place. We can look at the rem empires of the past. They have all fallen. The empires as powerful as they were. The empire of Rome. You could look down through the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek. All the empires of men have fallen by the wayside. And here the United States attaining great power. And we slowly see it sliding into degradation and as has been well said, where Christ and Christianity are forgotten and God is forsaken in any nation, paganism will return to the land. And certainly we see paganism coming to this land. Licentiousness, evil, Sin of the vilest character. Isn't it shocking to pick up your paper at night? I, we have the Long Island Press delivered. This is no publicity thing for press. But I couldn't help but be struck last night. The two big headlines. 118 ages caught in drug orgy. And then right below that, if you'd have looked below that, 30 teenagers caught in drug orgy. Mother and father away. The basement crowded with 108 teenagers. Some taking LSD. Some taking marijuana. As you know, I mentioned two weeks ago, the district attorney of Nassau County said that there is a high school in Nassau County where 80% of the students are on marijuana. It isn't more than 10 miles from this point right here. Many of the high schools 
This is what you're facing, mothers and fathers and young people. This is what you're facing. There's not a young person here who's in high school who doesn't know what I'm talking about. It's only by the grace of God and faith in Christ that your young people can be protected. And I want to tell you, mothers and fathers, I wish they were all here this morning, it's going to take a vibrant faith upon your part and great love and holiness of life and purity. If ever God called upon parents to be holy and pure and to set the standard for their children, it's today, in these last days. So God calls upon all of us here to set the standard high, to remember that as never before we may be tempted. Satan is warring. As it says, he goes about like a roaring lion, devouring whomever he will. And he doesn't go out into the world to do that. He comes into the church to do that. His warfare is not with the world. Jesus says Satan is the god of this world. And so it's not with the world he has to war. It's with the church of Jesus Christ. Now in connection with this, and I really could keep you two hours this morning, you see, but I won't. I'll prove to you that I'm a very considerate preacher. All right? I'm going to read to you portions of the epistle of Jude. If you will turn to that epistle just before Revelation, next to the last book of the Bible, Jude. This is a tremendous epistle. Little studied, Yet, perfect for the age we're living in, as you shall see as we read together. First, I would like to say this. There are two coming great events that overshadow all others in the life of the Christian. Are you a Christian this morning? Do you know Christ as your personal Savior? Have you been redeemed? Have you acknowledged yourself for what you really are? You haven't covered it up. You haven't glossed it over. You've looked within your heart and you see all the seed beds of sin that are there. You see all the vile temptations that have stirred you down through your life. Oh, the young may not fathom this quite as the older ones do. But you know what you are within the soul and that it's only by the grace of God and, and the power of Christ in your soul that you have been prevented from falling into deep sin Remember that the whole message of the Scripture is this, that although we may be tempted deeply as Christians, that if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul never says there aren't lust of the flesh. There are. We would be fools to try to cover it. There are lusts of the flesh. But Paul says, walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill, you see, the lusts of the flesh. Sometimes we've taken a pie-in-the-sky attitude or a super-pious attitude as though we as Christians never have such temptations. What folly! We are inviting Satan to come in and take hold of us and possess us 
by such an attitude. We are to remember that the greatest conflict of the universe is not between nations, but in the soul of a man. And it is a conflict between indwelling sin and the power of the Spirit of God that comes into the man who's really redeemed by Jesus Christ. And so there is a great conflict. But there are these two great events that are in the life of the Christian who really is in love with Jesus Christ, who has Christ as his personal Savior. Number one, the translation of all believers to see Jesus Christ. This is that which is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall be caught up together, caught up, rapere in Latin, the rapture of the church. Caught up to meet the Lord, and then shall we ever be with the Lord. That is the first event the born-again Christian is looking to, looking unto that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Son of God in the clouds of heaven to take us unto himself. This is the first and prime hope of the Christian. If the Lord is not coming to take us home to himself, if there is not to be a kingdom of purity and righteousness, rather never had been born, rather never have existed, rather never to have had children, rather never have to suffer the pangs and the plights of sorrow and burden and sin, if that is not the ultimate end of the Christian. And the second great event, after the great tribulation for the translation of the church, brings in the great tribulation, time of Israel's trouble, Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, seven years of the most terrible horror and judgment upon this earth, such as never was seen before. Oh, what shall I say? I listened to some congressional thing the other day with with some of the great generals from the army witnessing before Congress. Listen to their statement. Scientists are there, seated there. The nuclear physicist. This is in reference to the placing of the, these uh, stations, you know, beside Boston and these different places, the anti-missile stations to protect the population, which they have now laid aside. The questioning. What would be the death toll in the first nuclear attack? Scientists. Do you mean the death toll in the United States or the global test death toll? The congressman to the scientist. Truthfully, we did not think of it in this sphere. Yes, give us the global test death toll. Answer. 
in the first six minutes, 350 million They stand, they, everybody looks like this. Next question. How about the United States? 120 million dead out of 210 million people. Six minutes. Man, I'd flee to Christ right away. I'd be a godly mother and a godly father. I'd be... Young people, let me say this. This is a Bible. Sometimes people, you know, cast discredit upon this holy word of from the ultimate, the great scientist, what God has to say in his word, that one quarter of the population of the world shall be wiped out in his judgments, of which I'll be speaking in the next few weeks. One quarter died in the prime judgments, the beginning of the judgments of God upon the earth. And here man speaks of 350 million dead and they didn't finish with that. He said, incidentally, Congressman, you didn't ask me how many would be burned unto death and die within the next two years. 600 million from what? One third of the world's <coughs> population. You think I was reading the scriptures, doesn't it? It sounded like revelation, doesn't it? Huh? Mm -hmm. The Lord is coming soon. Let me read now from Jude, all right? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. Well, let me first read the 17th to the 19th verses of Jude. It's only one chapter, as you know. But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the spirit. Notice, mockers in the last time. Don't be surprised at this. These scientists are not mockers. These are men who are telling the facts as they see them. But there are mockers concerning the things of God. Peter says so, doesn't he? They say to you, where is the promise of his coming? All things go on as they've always gone on before. Where is this second coming that you speak about? What does Peter say? I would remind you, he says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men consider slackness, for with the Lord a thousand years are as a day. His judgment is coming. Don't you judge it by your little lifespan. Don't you judge it by the few years you spend in eternity here on earth, that little time you're here. This is the time God's designated for you to find the way to Jesus Christ. 
That word is there. It's available. That a man might come to Christ and he might be born again. He might escape the wrath which is to come. That is what the scripture says. Every man who's in Christ will escape the wrath which is to come. Now let me read. I've read you that 17th to the 19th about the mockers. And I have a lot to say about those, but let's continue here. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified, saved. Sanctified means separated unto God. Sanctified does not mean sinlessness. It means you are separated unto God. What separated you unto God? The new birth. Jesus says, lest a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We are sanctified, separated unto God by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. We are the sanctified ones. Oh, I'm so thankful God sanctified me. My Romanism didn't sanctify me. Judaism doesn't sanctify a man. It is Christ who sanctifies the man. It is Christ the Messiah. It is Christ the Lamb of God who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies. It is Christ's blood and not the blood of the Lamb of the Old Testament, but the blood of Christ that cleanses not just the Jew from sin, but the world. And to the Jew was given the oracles of God that they might be the disseminators of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that every apostle of the cross of Jesus is a Jew. And here we are, the sanctified ones. Do you live? Well, may I ask, do you live as a sanctified one? You know, I've so often said from this pulpit and I cry out continually, unless you're excited about Jesus Christ and your faith in the second coming of Christ, you can't possibly have the vibrancy and the joy of the Christian life. There's an excitement to Christ. It is the romance, not of the ages, but of eternity. It is the love of God, the greatest romance of all the world. That God loved us like no one ever loved. And gave his son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. We are the sanctified ones in Christ Jesus. Notice that. To them that are sanctified by God the Father. Now notice the next here. And preserved in Jesus Christ. Don't you rejoice in that? Oh, boy, I tell you, I'm tingling, you know. Runs up and down my spine. <laughs> Preserved. Do you know God? Do you have fellowship with him? Do you speak to him as your father? Do you know that when you speak, it's not some academic recitation, but it is a love communion with your father? Do you feel his presence? Do you sense it? Most prayers are nothingness. Most prayers are recitations. Most prayers are not even thought of. I couldn't help but think yesterday I wrote my son Bob a letter. I have to write to him because I see my other children, but 
I have to write to him over in Holland. But as I wrote, I thought to myself, it's so wonderful to write my heart on paper. Nothing academic about my letter to my son, filled with love for him, and yet with concerns. I'm able to say to him, I have deep concerns about these things. Son, I want you to know I love you with all my heart, but I must say what my heart feels. I have deep concerns. I pray for you always. I yearn for your life. I don't want you to think, son, that just because you're studying the Word of God over there and things seem to be going so well, I've stopped praying. Because I know the warfare of Satan. And I know how Satan works. I warn him, I know you're coming out with a PhD. Some, frankly, they'll offer you fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in the universities in the United States because you will be a professor of philosophy and religion. Both have to go together. You can't study religion without philosophy, see? When he graduates from the University of Utrecht, he'll have this. I thank God that he's written me back and said, Dad, remember, I was offered 15000 when I graduated from the University of Illinois and didn't take it. But you can speak as a father to a child. You can speak and you have a burden of love in your heart. A mother can speak with that burden of love deeply. And I can't help but think here, we're preserved by Jesus Christ. This is more than I ever can do for my son Bob, may I say that? All the letters in the world I write to him, as filled as they might be with love, all that I might speak to my son Donald, whom I love just exactly the same as Bob and the same as my daughter Lynn. There's not one variation in my love for my children, just as no variation in God's love for any of you and me. It's the same that I'm thrilled in my heart that I can say that no matter what my letters might say, the Word of God has to be the source of their strength. For the whole job of my life has been not for me to preserve them, and I'm afraid too many times we try to preserve them. I have turned the preservation of my children over to Christ. The whole job of my life has been but one. The whole job of your life is but one. That is to wean your children away from yourself as a mother and father, as hard as that seems, and wean them to Jesus and to God the Father so when you die, Father, they have a Father in heaven and they get the love they need. That's your job. That's your job. We're preserved in Jesus Christ. Mother, did the children know you were preserved in Christ, huh? That all your strength, all that you are, Father, do they know this about you? Does your son see the loving expression of your life? Has it been rather didactic rules? You do this or else, 
Or has it been a deep and holy love from a mother's heart and a father's heart that can shed tears on their knees with their children and yearn for them to Christ? This is what God's looking for. Something that's intense within the human heart. And time and again the scripture speaks of the tears of the saints and the burdens of their heart and the holinesses of their yearnings for the fullness of Christ to dwell in them. So as Paul says, that they may see you in the stature of Christ. Mother, are you fulfilling it? You're going to a coffin if Christ doesn't come. You'll be in the coffin. The children will look at you. I'd love to know what they think. In those moments when that parent is in the coffin, oh, that the children might be, my mother, oh, her godliness and her purity. My mother loved me unto tears, was burned of heart. It wasn't her house, sad. No, it was me. She loved and she poured out her compassion and her love and her tenderness upon my soul and it's become part of me because Christ came in and filled me to overflowing. Father, what will they think of you? I've mentioned it before, but I always think of that great preacher buried back around 1850. His name was Patton. He died, had a congregation like this, loving congregation, tender congregation. And he left directions for his wife. He said, honey, if I die before you do. Listen, do you ever talk that way? Huh? If I die before you do. Some of you may never talk about it. You know, mothers and fathers and all, husbands and wives. But most of the time, you get around to it sometime especially after you just observed the birthday I observed, you know, just a little short time ago. You'd think, you know. After all, if Jesus tarried, my life potential is uh, 10 years, according to statistics. Steve and I often talk, his life potential is three. <laughs> but you say, you know how it is, you say, uh, I hope you go first, honey. You know, you often hear a husband and wife. I hope you go first because uh, I think maybe I could take it better. Do you really say that? Or do you say, I hope I go first? You don't want to suffer the loss. You don't want to suffer the sorrow. You don't want to suffer the burden. But beloved, we all, and I can't but remember those words that he said. Here's what I want you to do, darling. He said, on the coffin, and today I guess you wouldn't get to see too much of this, but he says, on my breast, the people, he said, I'll be laid out in church. He said, I want them to know. And he says, would you put these things on my breast? In the words of Paul, remember those things that I spoke unto you while I was yet with you. Isn't that wonderful? Remember those things that I spoke unto you while I was yet with you. And so, beloved, are you preserved in Christ? Preservation. 
You know, I think Jesus puts it so well. The great preservative is salt. Jesus says to his children, ye are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, it's fit for nothing but to be trodden underfoot of men. There's to be, if I might say, beloved, a pungency about our life as we look to the coming of the Lord Jesus. A pungency, the salt, the preservative. How do we know that? Simply at the end of the age of grace, the church is to be taken out. The salt, that which is preserving the earth. And great tribulation sets in. Because those who are the salt of the earth, the children of God, have been removed. And when the salt, the preservative, is taken out, the barrel rots quickly. Are you preserved in Christ Jesus this morning? Mother, father, young person, are you preserved? Do you know Christ really in your heart? I'm so glad that what I preach is absolute divine truth. I move not one iota from the word of God. Believe it with all my breast and my soul. And I believe that the people whom God has placed under my care will believe the same. For they know that it is not in word only that I preach, but as Paul, I came unto you not in words only, but in the Spirit and in the power of the Holy Ghost. Are you preserved in Christ? Gee, you know, that is only, actually, the first of about six points. And it is time. How fast it goes, 40 minutes. It could go on and on and on. Let us pray. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy precious word. Give us a hunger in our hearts, God. Help us to see reality. Lord, mothers and fathers, me, preacher. God, help us all to see it together. For the church is a community, a communion. As Paul puts it, speaking to those who listened, we are co-laborers together for Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that having been redeemed in the blood of Christ, sanctified and preserved by Jesus Christ, we will vibrantly live that life God has called us to. Oh, we're looking to that first great event for the Christian, the translation of the church, the translation of the believers to be with their Savior before the wrath of God falls upon this earth, to judge men for their wickedness, to judge men for their vileness, to judge men for their deceits, to judge men for their governments that plunder and hurt the people, God, help us, help this nation. Lord God, we cry out. Thou hast said, if any nation will turn from its wicked ways and turn unto me and humble themselves and seek my face, then will I forgive their sins and cleanse their land. God, help us. But help us above all else as individuals redeemed in Christ's blood to live 
for him. In his name we pray. Amen.